Thank you, Doug. And I'd like to also thank the Delivery of Legal Services section of the Boston Bar Association for hosting us today. And welcome and thank you all for attending on Zoom this year um, as the Access to Justice Fellows Program looks forward to our 10th year. It's going to be a year of celebration, we hope. And um, again, I'm Susan Gedrick, the Executive Director at Lawyers Clearinghouse. I've had the privilege of managing the Fellows Program since the 2017 class began. And um, seven of our amazing fellows are here with me today to share their um, experiences with you with uh, um, participating in the program. So we'll get to that very shortly. Um, of course, this is an event that we look forward to every year so that we have the opportunity to meet those of you interested in joining the program. Um, and of course, um, we would love to be with you in person, um, but of course we can't do that. Um, and, um, but we are, I just wanna know, we're very happy to be, we are very happy to be able to run this program virtually. It's, um, it's been very successful this year and we're really very inspired um, by all of you who want to volunteer during this very challenging time. So thank you. Um, our information session will start with Martha Coster giving us a bit of background and history of the program. So I'd love to turn it over to you now, Martha. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. Well, I'm gonna very briefly tell you the origin story and um, a little bit about the program and how it's worked. So roughly 11 years ago, um, Sue Finnegan and I got together. Sue, by the way, is um, unable to come today, but I'm being her and me both for this. Um, and anyway, we had a conversation in which we talked about the fact that um, the demographics were such that there are a number, a large number of lawyers who are retiring in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who are very able to work, very interested in working, and who many of whom would, would very much welcome the opportunity to do pro bono work. At the same time, the need in legal services organizations and in nonprofits is enormous. So it seemed like there should be some way to marry those two things. Um, we uh, shopped our idea around, we got a number of people really interested, and the most critical one was um, Chief, former Chief Justice Gantz, who was, has been from the beginning um, the real cheerleader and person without whom this never would have happened. Um, with his support, the program was uh, rolled out through the Access to Justice Commission originally, um, and we had our first year with eight fellows, um, which in the 10 years since we've been in business, so to speak, um, I, Susan will give you the exact number, but certainly more than 120 people um, have been through this program. Um, let me tell you a little bit about what it is. So it was adopted by the Lawyers Clearinghouse. Um, and since then, or since, uh, 2017, I guess, it's been run under the um, expert leadership of Susan Gedrick. Um, and the program has grown, will continue to grow. And we very much hope that at some point, it will be part of every lawyer's 
uh, uh, career life that after retirement from work, that this would be a pro bono opportunity that would allow them to continue to work. And by the way, the fact that um, a number of firms have mandatory retirements has definitely created a large number of people who would like the opportunity to do something useful um, and to remain active. Um, and I think when you hear from the fellows who will speak today, you will understand exactly how this works. Um, so the program, as it's been set up, calls for a one-year commitment. It's an academic year from the fall when we have our kickoff. Um, in the past, the kickoff has been at the SJC courtroom. Obviously, we couldn't do that with COVID, but hopefully we will again at some point. Um, so it's from June until, I mean, from uh, the fall, September, or early October until June when we have a graduation ceremony. Um, it, although that period of time is the initial commitment, um, most, the majority of fellows continue to work for the program, either with their original um, partnership or else with a new one, doing a new project. So um, the way that the program works is every fellow is partnered with a legal services organization or nonprofit to do a specific project. And typically um, there's sort of a matching uh, process that goes on um, whereby the fellow, the potential fellow um, thinks about what his or her interests are and um, Susan and some of the rest of us try and match you and Janet also with, um, with a program that fits your interests. Um, we've been very watchful that the programs are working well and that the people are getting the support they need. Um, and so far that's been very successful. Um, I wanna stress that the types of work that people are doing is extremely varied. Um, we found from the beginning that there are retiring lawyers who are not comfortable doing certain types of things. Um, there are a number of judges who don't want to go to court. There are people who just um, uh, want to do something different. So many people decide to undertake something that they have not done before, which was my own experience. I started doing immigration work with care, and that's something I had not done at all before. Other people have continued with the work that they do in which they feel comfortable. And I want to stress that a, lot, a number of the people um, have done corporate work, have done tax work, things that are not immediately um, obvious that you could do in this, um, with the, in this uh, access to justice format. But indeed, um, uh, we have people who are working with low-income people, helping them with taxes. We have a lot of people who are working with different organizations, helping them with corporate, <laughs> corporate um, issues. Uh, so don't write yourself off if you have um, a specialty that you feel you know wouldn't you wouldn't easily. Uh, go along with an organization. I'm sure that we will find something for you. Um, the one other thing I want to say about the program is that we have 
as part of it a, a monthly luncheon. And although this year the lunches have all been virtual, in the past they've been um, live at Mints, and I hope we will be able to, to resume that. Um, the lunches are real value added, and I think all the fellows have found this to be so. So most of the lunches are for the fellows of the current year, and it's an opportunity for them uh, to communicate, to network, and to share um, at each meeting, a, a partner organization and a fellow present their work, their mission, what they're doing. There's people ask questions. Sometimes um, problems are batted around with people's ideas as to how to approach them. And I think it's been, um, we've heard from the fellows who have uh, participated that it's really been um, a great thing, a way for them to keep in touch um, with other lawyers and also it's just to uh, learn many new things about organizations that they knew nothing about. Um, twice a year, we have all fellows lunches, which is um, when fellows from every class are invited and we usually get a very big turnout and people again are sharing what the experience has been for them. So um, just as a personal note, before I turn it back to Susan, um, I've said this before, um, my experience over the last 10 years with my uh, work, my pro bono immigration work that I've been doing has really been uh, added a dimension to my life and it's been totally transforming. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do it. I think other fellows have also had very gratifying experiences and I'll leave it to them to tell you. Susan. Thank you, Martha. Um, as Martha said, this um, we're really kicking off our recruiting year for 2021-2022 um, today and we're really looking forward to the chance of working with you if you're interested in joining the program. Um, we aim to have every year about 20 new fellows uh, this year we have 14, um, so usually between, we'll try to um, aim for 15 to 20 fellows for the upcoming year. We generally have about three to five new partner organizations join us each year as well. Um, in total now, we have 150 fellows, um, two honorary, um, so we've hit another great milestone, and we have almost 90 partner organizations. Um, so within that network, um, we really work to find you um, all a project that can be meaningful for you and that you can really be interested in. Um, so we welcome new partner organizations, but we also have a great um, foundation to, to find you a great project. Um, and it, as Martha said, also, we, um, we, have, um, we have about... Um, um, we asked for 10 hours of commitment, maybe about an average of 10 hours of commitment. Sorry, I was struggling to, to, um, to say that. Um, fellows usually work between 10 to 20 hours a week, um, but we find that the average is about 10 hours a week. And the schedule, of course, can be flexible. You can work that out with your partner organization um, as you're transitioning into retirement or as you're already retired. We know that vacations are very important. Family time is very important. 
um, partner organizations know that as well. So just know that schedules can be very flexible, um, but we do want you to have meaningful, substantial projects. So that's why we have that sort of 10 hour um, a week average in there. Um, I also just want you to know that I'm gonna be your main contact person throughout the matching process. Um, Janet Donovan, who will um, moderate our panel in just a minute is also very involved as is Martha and um, Sue Finnegan as well. So, um, but just know that you can reach out to me at any time with any questions that you have about the process. It's really a very individual process with each fellow. Um, the matching process um, can last throughout the spring and summer. For some people, the match um, is almost immediate. Some fellows come to us um, with um, really projects already established in a way that they've been working with a certain partner organization, um, doing some volunteer work, and they really just want to sort of make that more of a commitment. Um, and so some fellows bring projects to us that way. Um, some fellows just come to us with ideas, um, as Martha said, new areas of law that um, they may want to work in or um, areas of expertise and they just need to find a partner organization and a project so we can work with you um, to match you with the project and an organization that way. And then of course, we also have partner organizations come to us with project ideas um, and um, we generate a list of projects that come to us through partner organizations um, and distribute that list periodically throughout the spring and summer to potential fellows so that um, if you're interested in um, choosing one of those projects, you can let us know and we can match you with a partner organization that way. Um, but really the first step in the matching process is to contact me if you're interested. If you're here today, of course, I'll reach out to um, everyone attending today um, with my contact information, with a digital packet of um, materials about the program. Of course, you can visit our website um, and all of the information will be there as well. Um, but that's really the first step. We'll have a Zoom meeting or a phone conversation, whichever you're most comfortable with, and get to know each other, get to know your interests, um, talk about some partner organizations that might be a good match for you. Um, and then after that, um, it really depends. You, some fellows talk to just one partner organization and they know it's a great match and then they can start to develop the project and the description um, to really fit their interests. Um, some fellows talk to three or four different partner organizations until they really find, um, find the match. So um, I would say on average, it usually takes about a month for a fellow to be matched from the time um, you talk to me to the time you talk with your partner organization and really get a project developed. Some um, fellows, it can take two to three months to do that. So, um, but we really work with each fellow individually. I mean, you'll have a series of meetings to make sure that your project is just what you want it to be. Um, so it's a little vague, but um, we'll work together one-on-one, -on -one, um, I think is what you really need to know at this point to make sure you have a project um, that fits you best. Um, I think now really to get an idea of what projects are like and the variety of projects available to you as an Access to Justice Fellow, we'll, we'll hear from our panel of, of fellows. Janet Donovan, who has been an Access to Justice Fellow since 2015, 
for the program itself. She helps manage the Access to Justice Fellows Program. We'll moderate the panel um, and introduce each of the fellows coming to us from different classes. Um, and again, with a great variety of amazing pro bono work. So Janet, turn it over to you. Thank you, Susan. It's a pleasure to introduce you to our five panelists who will each speak for uh, five minutes about their projects. But we have on the panel today, Rosemary Allen, the Honorable Cynthia Cohen, Karen Quant, John Bowman, and Michael Felson. I'll introduce each in turn as uh, I call upon the panelists to speak to you. And well, we hope to have a little time at the end of this presentation to um, field your questions. And so we'll ask Rosemary Allen to begin. Rosemary was a partner at Mintz Levin until she retired from the firm in 2012. She practiced in the firm's intellectual property and litigation sections, focusing in the areas of complex business litiga litigation, intellectual property litigation, criminal law, and appellate practice. Prior to attending law school, Rosemary earned a master's in education and taught English at Brockton High School for approximately 10 years. After law school, she served as a clerk to the Honorable Bruce Celia in the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. For her Access to Justice Fellowship project, Rosemary worked with Veterans Legal Services, which was started by Boston College law students to serve people who were homeless, especially homeless veterans. Her objective was to expand the volunteer attorney program, thereby substantially increasing the number of clients that Veterans Legal Services could serve. That was Rosemary's plan. What she actually accomplished was in fact quite remarkable. Rosemary. Thank you, Janet. Um, yeah, so I had the privilege of working with uh, Veterans Legal Services. And to Susan's point, this is an organization that was recommended to me by a friend. I didn't know them, uh, but I, I brought it to Access to Justice and they said, fine. And it all worked out well because they've had an Access to Justice fellow uh, every year since. So it worked out. Um, I was working for Veterans Legal Services is really a privilege. First of all, they serve a population to whom we owe so much. And, um, and the, uh, the people who work there are incredibly dedicated to making sure that veterans get all of the uh, services and benefits that are due to them and uh, to you know, protect them in any way through civil legal services. We don't do criminal, the royal we, I, they don't do criminal. Um, so uh, it's run by two remarkable young women. I will have to say they are astoundingly bright, uh, personable, organized, just the best possible people to work with. Uh, I did, as, as Janet indicated, I started, I did not want to practice law. Uh, I wanted to do something else. I had some administrative abilities based on my experience at Mintz. And so I ended up uh, starting with the project of uh, helping them organize their um, volunteer lawyers, of which they now have uh, about 140 lawyers throughout the city who take cases for them and, and that they help to, help to manage those cases. Um, I was replaced in that by a professional, uh, ultimately, uh, Lynn Gurton, who some of you may know, and it has, and they've had a, 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 a professional doing it since then, but it was a privilege to, to get that started. Um, since that time, I've joined their board. I've been on their board now for about six years. 
Um, and I have worked with them in helping with their, their various clinics that, um, that they have, including one at the Bedford VA where we met um, until COVID. Uh, we met out there in person about once a month and saw about 25 um, people, veterans from around the, the Eastern part of the, the state. They would come from all sorts of places, not just the VA. And we got to hear their stories. We got to assist them. Uh, a number of other fellows were involved, uh, judges Chernoff and Kratzley, Kristen Birnbaum, uh, the various fellows who, who were working with them. And the current fellow is uh, whom some of you may know as Pam Meister. And she was uh, a, a big assistant there as well. So it was a, it was a privilege to get to hear the stories of the veterans, to be able to assist them, to be able to get them legal services and to be involved in that. The LS has grown during the time that I have been there. They started out at BC and literally in a garret. Um, fortunately, I lived nearby, and didn't have to really go in to, because there was no room for me. Uh, but they now have, um, they now work, have a, a much bigger office space downtown, have expanded their, uh, their staff and, serve about eight to 900 veterans per year. Um, I would say that my experience with access to justice has been really wonderful. It uh, provided, like many people, I wasn't entirely sure what, what retirement would be like, how I was gonna to master it or, or function, uh, but it, uh, it provided a structure. It provided a way for me to use the skills that I have to further help people and organizations um, and to, to stay engaged. Uh, it also helped, it is also useful that we have the twice a week, or I'm sorry, twice a year gatherings. I got to know people that I'd always heard about, legendary lawyers, but I had never met them. So it's, it, was, it was a great thing. I've made friends. And in fact, I enjoyed it so much that my husband, Dick Allen, decided that he had to do it too when he retired. So he has been a fellow since 2014. Uh, and he, while I did not know the nonprofit that I became involved with when I first started, he brought to it a nonprofit that he knew very well. And in fact, it actually worked for at one time. So any of, all of those models work. But, uh, and then we got our next door neighbor, Andy Cohn involved after he retired from Wilmer Hale. So we're, um, we're, we're big proponents of this. I think it, it bring, you can, it shows that you can bring a lot to the table and access to justice brings a lot to, uh, to it for all of you. So I would, I would highly recommend it. We've had a, nothing but positive experiences in this two fellow family. Thank you so much, Rosemary. Our next panelist, panelist is the Honorable Cynthia J. Cohen. Um, Justice Cohen served as an Associate Justice of the Massachusetts Appeals Court from 2001 until her retirement on January 1st, 2017. While on the Appeals Court, Justice Cohen was a commissioner on the second Access to Justice Commission. She also chaired the SJC, SJC Standing Committee on Self-Represented Litigants, which developed a number of court system initiatives to address the needs of litigants without counsel. Justice Cohen also chaired the SJC Committee to study the Massachusetts Code of Judicial Conduct, 
which drafted and proposed a comprehensive revision of that code. <clears throat> After approval of the code, the SJC appointed Justice Cohen as chair of the Committee on Judicial Ethics. Upon graduation from law school, Justice Cohen joined the Boston law firm of Parker, Coulter, Daly & White, where she worked as an associate and later as a partner. And in 1985, she co-founded Meehan, Boyle, and Cohen, PC, where her civil litigation practice emphasized tort insurance and appellate matters, and where she offered mediation and arbitration services. She served a four-year term on the Board of Bar Overseers, including one year as its chair. She was active in the Massachusetts Bar Association, where she held several leadership positions, and is a fellow and former trustee of the Massachusetts Bar Foundation. Justice Cohen taught appellate practice as an adjunct faculty member of the Suffolk University Law School and has lectured at numerous continuing education programs for attorneys and judges. For her fellowship project, Justice Cohen worked with an access to justice with the Access to Justice Commission on a project called the Massachusetts Justice for All Project, a collaborative effort by the commission, the courts, legal aid providers, bar associations, law schools, social service organizations, litigants, community groups, and others to develop and implement strategies <clears throat> to increase access to effective assistance for those with essential legal needs. I'm sure you'll find it interesting to hear just a few of the many innovations with which Justice Cohen has been involved. Thank you, Janet, and that long introduction was hardly necessary, but uh, it was kind of a nice little trip down memory lane for me. Um, when I retired from the bench at the beginning of 2017, uh, I was actually very relieved that I finally had the time to tackle all those household projects that I had ignored for so many years. Uh, so I immediately ran out and bought folders and labels for all the family papers that I was gonna organize. And I got different sizes of bins to tidy up all the drawers and closets. And I stocked up on giant trash bags uh, because I was going to convince my husband that the two of us were gonna declutter our basement. Uh, but this Marie Kondo phase wore off very quickly. Uh, I soon realized that while I may have been ready to leave my job, I wasn't ready to leave the fray. Uh, I wanted and needed to remain part of the legal community and to continue to work on issues that mattered to me. Uh, and so I called Sue Finnegan, whom I knew from the Access to Justice Commission, and she helped me figure out a, a perfect role for me as an Access to Justice Fellow. I knew that I wanted to continue to work on issues involving the court system, especially access to justice for self-represented litigants. And so Sue came up with the idea that I could be a fellow whose sponsoring organization would be the Access to Justice Commission itself. This really turned out to be a perfect assignment for me. Uh, during my time as a fellow and a continuing fellow over the past couple of years, uh, I've had the privilege of working on a number of uh, very interesting commission projects. Uh, I began by working on the Justice for All project, which was a strategic planning process for improving access to justice in Massachusetts, uh, which was made possible uh, by outside grant money. When that process uh, was completed, I was then asked uh, to take a fresh look at options for expanding the role of non-lawyers in the delivery of legal services and to report back to Sue uh, and Chief Justice Gantz with some ideas. 
Perhaps the most challenging assignment that I received from the commission was to work with uh, retired Judge Paul Chernoff, who's also a continuing fellow, uh, and Attorney and Access to Justice Commissioner Jeff Catalano on the troubling issue of cell phone bans at our courthouses. Uh, over a long period of years, uh, there had been uh, just a few instances where cell phones had been used to photograph witnesses or to summon Confederates uh, to make trouble at the courthouse. Uh, but the response to these uh, incidents was very extreme. Uh, nearly half of our courthouses, about 40 of them, prohibited court visitors, including self-represented litigants, from bringing their cell phones into the building, uh, even though uh, an exception was made for lawyers, and even though self-represented litigants uh, really need their phones when they come to court for a variety of reasons. After many months of investigation, our little gang of three uh, prepared a report to the commission explaining how cell phone bans had created barriers to access to justice and how they could be phased out and replaced with other uh, effective security measures. The commission endorsed the report, the trial court initiated a process to eliminate the bans. And then once uh, the pandemic hit, uh, the bans were suspended uh, in, uh, completely uh, because of the recognition of how important it was that people have access to their phones. So that really was a very uh, meaningful project to have worked on. More recently, I've been involved with a commission committee that is looking into procedural hurdles uh, that often result in the dismissal of appeals in housing cases. And I've participated uh, as a panelist uh, doing moot courts with legal services lawyers. Um, these uh, are organized by another continuing fellow, Dick Bauer, who assists legal services lawyers with appellate cases. All of these projects have been very, very re rewarding and meaningful to me. Uh, I feel very fortunate to have found a, a perfect niche uh, in which to do this volunteer work. Um, and uh, it has, while it has sometimes been uh, time consuming at my choice, uh, it also has allowed me uh, to have time for other things such as right now I'm involved in a criminal justice task force uh, that I joined last year. Uh, based on my experience, I, I really think there are two particularly great things about the fellows program. Um, first, it gives you the opportunity to choose your own adventure. Uh, you can select an area that is of particular interest to you, whether it's immigration, the environment, uh, juvenile justice, you name it, it can be uh, pretty much anything. Um, and you can choose from a variety of ways uh, to be of help. So that could include direct representation of clients, mentoring young attorneys, uh, consulting with a nonprofit, or su supporting the work of the courts. I'm not the only one who has uh, taken on a project of that nature. The, the second really great thing about the program uh, is that you do become part of a community. Uh, as you've heard, fellows gather at monthly meetings to hear about each other's projects and to, pro to provide each other with support. Uh, these meetings are always educational, they're inspiring, and sometimes they have moved me to tears. So my message to you, uh, if you are a new retiree, is that the closets, the drawers, and the cluttered basement can wait, 
what our generation is really meant to do in retirement is to keep trying to make a difference. And the fellows program gives you a wonderful way to do that. Thank you so much, Justice Cohen. Our next panelist is Karen Quant. Karen practiced law in the Chicago area for 38 years prior to retiring in 2014. She was affiliated with the law firm of Tenney and Bentley for 16 years, first as an associate and later as a partner. And then in 1990, Karen opened her own office in Wilmette, Illinois, specializing in family law. She continued to practice law as a sole practitioner until 2014 when she closed the office and moved to Boston. During her career, Karen was a program presenter for women's support organizations, including the Lilac Tree in Evanston, Illinois, and the Women's Exchange in Winnetka, Illinois. Karen also did pro bono work in the Circuit Court of Cook County Domestic Relations Division Facilitator Program and is court-appointed child's representation or guardian ad litem in high conflict custody cases. When Karen joined the Access to Justice Fellows Program, she was already an indispensable volunteer working as a conciliator with the SERVE program, the Settlement and Early Resolution Volunteers, an innovative project of the Volunteer Lawyers Project and its Senior Partners for Justice program. Karen assisted in the settlements of cases at the Suffolk Probate and Family Court, thereby delivering high quality pro bono civil legal services to low income clients who would otherwise have to negotiate the court without counsel. At the end of her fellowship year, Volunteer Lawyers Project honored Karen with the Gideon's Trumpet Award for her outstanding efforts to provide access to justice in civil matters. Please go ahead, Karen. Hello, glad to be here today. Um, unlike the other presenters who sound like they have more um, theoretical or uh, doing things not in the court system, you know, rolling up their sleeves hands on, my project involved simply showing up every Monday, um, seeing who had been sent to our mediation conciliation room um, by the, the uh, Suffolk family judges that were there that day. And uh, then sitting down with the litigants who typically were not represented, seeing what was up before the court that day and seeing if we could assist them in resolving their issues. Um, in order to work in this particular program, you had to have family law experience and conciliation training. The, the issues themselves aren't terribly complex for anyone who's had family law experience. So you don't need a whole lot of family law experience. Typical cases would be um, modification of child support, either increases by the people who are getting the support or decreases wanted by the people paying the support. Um, simple uh, divorce judgments, people that are, have filed for divorce, they basically have very little property, maybe some debts, um, children that you might have to work out some custody for. Uh, but we had prepared um, sort of sample judgment and settlement agreement forms, check the box type thing that we could go through with them. Um, also, we had parenting and visitation issues. The interesting part of the work that we did, though, is often these people either had it was their first time at court and they had no idea how anything worked or their files were very, very thick and they had been to court so many times that they were worn out by the system um, and were equally confused about what what they should be doing. 
So this was an opportunity for the lawyer to sit down with the people one-on-one, explain to them what, what they were there for, what the process was, what the law was that applied to their case and what their options might be. Um, some These people were often very, very grateful because this may be the first time they'd actually had anyone take the time to sit and listen and find out what their situation was and try and work with them to resolve it. Um, there was a high success rate on the majority of our cases where we settled all the issues or some of the issues. Occasionally we'd have a, a, a couple that just, um, they weren't appropriate for conciliation. Um, it just was not possible. Not all of the people that we worked with were English speaking. Um, We have um, court interpreters available to us. Um, There's a a Spanish one that basically would almost come by every time we were there to see, you know, when's your next Spanish case gonna be because we had so many um, Spanish speaking um, litigants. And there were other um, interpreters available. And then last year we got a call-in phone service that we could use as well, which wasn't quite as um, easy to use, but was available if we needed it. Um, So one of the, just to give you a flavor of one of the cases that I worked on that I thought was particularly um, gratifying was a young couple who came and um, the husband, and these were couple, this couple I'd say was in their late 20s, early 30s. The husband had, they were divorced and the, the I'll call him the father, had been um, a drug abuser and um, had been in jail and then in a rehab program and was now out um, and appeared articulate, clean, sober, um, and was seeking visitation rights with his daughter. Um, who was only two and a half, three years old. It's getting fuzzy as the years go by on this one. Um, The mother, and and he had been a drug abuser when the baby was an infant. So basically had no part in her life for the majority of her life. The child had no idea who her father was. And the mother, of course, was understandably concerned about um, the father having any contact with the child at all. And I explained to them that the judge, if in fact he was truly... um, you know, clean of drugs now and and gainfully employed, that he would be likely to get some contact with his daughter, perhaps under a supervised arrangement through the court supervising system that they would have to pay to and go, you know, schedule appointments to and the child would be left with a social worker in a playroom and he would then come, etc. But that perhaps we could work out something that might be better for everybody. Um, we spent a long time talking about how to work some incremental plan in baby steps where perhaps mom and dad would meet at a park and they, the child could see that mom was sitting on the bench very close by and that, you know, would have some contact with dad at the park. And we'd do that for a number of weeks and then plan something else. And so we had a, a 60 day order in place that basically got him to the point where he could um, be at a park or a public library for a limited period of time and mom would be close by where she would watch but unobserved at one point. Um, And they weren't willing to go any further than the 60 days. So I said, well, we can set a status. You can come back the next time and and see, but you you know, sign up for a Monday. So serve people will be here. You may get me, you may not get me, but you're certainly willing to ask for me. 
Um, and they, they asked, then they waited until I was free with the case I was on. And we did that round robin for a four or five times until we got to the point where he was actually, um, and it was over a period of a year, able to see his daughter um, during the day, during a Saturday for a five or six hour period of time. And then we continued that for a long period of time, like a year order to see if he was going to be able to get overnights. Um, the reason I found that very gratifying is these were, were not bad people as they sat before me. That was an unfortunate set of circumstances um, that made them both very um, nervous about, you know, throwing themselves in the court system to have a judge impose what might be right for their young child. Um, but they were willing to work together, um, but didn't quite know how to do it or didn't have the ideas how to put it in place. So I felt very good at the end of that of perhaps being able to serve the needs of this child in a way that helped this child perhaps have good relationship with both parents going forward. Um, and I think the court system was always gratified to, to get the orders that we had put together in the serve cases because they typically would have more detail in them than perhaps um, a judge could put the, in them with a five or 10 minute hearing in a huge backlog of cases in the Suffolk probate and family court system. Um, so I would encourage any of you that are interested in family law, consider being conciliators in the SERV program. Um, you show up on an appointed day of the week. You're there from nine until two is our commitment, but sometimes we would stay later if we were in the middle of a case. Um, you have a good sense of satisfaction because you're able to start and finish something. Um, the people are incredibly grateful and um, you do feel like you have helped the court system um, with their, their load of cases um, to be able to accomplish um, getting people through the system in a, in a satisfactory manner with the goal that perhaps they won't come back quite so often if you got things um, accomplished for them appropriately the first time. Um, for the program itself, as you heard in my bio, I came here in 2014. Um, I knew nobody except my son, daughter-in-law and grandchildren at the point I came, I came to be near them. So I knew no lawyers. Um, I had taken a fair amount of time to get my reciprocity on my um, Illinois uh, law license. And then I felt very guilty that I wasn't using it. My thought was maybe I would pick up a part-time job only to discover with all the law schools and all the newly licensed lawyers in Massachusetts that um, being a very experienced family lawyer who only wanted to work certain hours at a very high rate of pay and to be able to call my own shots was not something that was ever going to happen in, the, in, in at that point in time. So I actually found um, the, the VLP uh, program that that oversees the serve program senior and the senior partners for justice by Google. Um, <laughs> But having become an Access to Justice Fellow put me in touch with a whole bunch of lawyers that I would never have otherwise met. And, and I so enjoyed the luncheons where I learned about immigration law and I learned about some of the appellate things that were going in the veterans projects, things that I would never have access to know about and people that are just so um, articulate and fun to be with and um, heartwarming that they are willing to work so hard um, in so many different areas of the law in their retirement. Thank you so much, Karen. And our next speaker is John Bowman. 
Um, John began his legal career as a legal services lawyer in Roxbury in Dorchester with what is now known as Greater Boston Legal Services. He later became a clinical teaching fellow at Harvard Law School and then an associate professor of law and the director of the civil clinical program at Boston University, where he also taught federal courts professional responsibility and client interviewing and negotiation. John served as an assistant attorney general in the government bureau under three Massachusetts attorneys general. After leaving state government, he was a, part, a partner in Bowman and Penske, a part-time virtual law firm that specialized in municipal representation. He has served as a part-time hearing officer for the Commonwealth Health Insurance Connector Authority and for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. John is a longtime uh, member of the board of directors of GBLS and has also served on the boards of the Massachusetts Council for Public Justice and the Civil Liberties Union of Massachusetts. For his Access to Justice Fellowship Project, John focused his efforts on reform of the criminal justice system to end mass incarceration. He worked with the Jobs Not Jails Coalition, which includes grassroots, ex-prisoner, faith community, and labor organizations, and coordinated efforts with other organizations, such as the Special Commission to Study the Criminal Justice System, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and the Civil Liberties Union. One of the many successes of John's work with the coalition during his fellowship year was this passage of a significant criminal justice reform bill. Please go ahead, John. Hello. Uh, well, as Janet has already told you, uh, I got involved in working on criminal justice reform. I had never practiced criminal law before, and I was involved in a legislative product, project, and I had never actually worked in the legislature before. Um, so I'm one of those examples of somebody who came into this fellowship and totally changed what I've been doing for the past. Uh, so I'm thankful that Martha Koster reached out to me and then when I said, I think this is what interests me, uh, I was very appreciative. I actually got started in this very, very slowly by reading a book, uh, a book that later became quite well known uh, called The New Jim Crow. And it introduced the phenomenon of a policy shift in the American uh, judicial and legal system that led to mass incarceration. The uh, statistic that always stands out as many years as I've heard it now is that the United States has 5% of the world's population and yet we have 25% of the world's prisoners, one out of four. So, the effort was to begin to try to relook at the criminal justice system, try to introduce the concept of decisions should be made on evidence that would show that there was some good or some bad to come from these decisions as opposed to making them as they so often had been uh, on quick emotional responses. Uh, one thing I learned about the legislature is an example of hurry up and wait. Uh, all of a sudden you have to respond very quickly uh, and both uh, the group I was working with and many other groups that I got familiar with throughout this process and we started meeting regularly uh, would show up for hearings uh, on 24 hours of notice uh, and then of course wait for months to see if there'd be any result. Uh, the first legislative session when I first became a fellow 2015-16 we got one bill through the legislature. Important bill, but, but not a big big step forward. 
there was during that period a very outside study of the system being done. So we were really very involved in contact with, with that study. The second year, as Janet just referred to, we're now talking about 2017-2018. Uh, by April of 2018, we got a massive bill passed, uh, sort of, if you will, a soup to nuts uh, shift in a number of pieces of the Massachusetts criminal justice system uh, that we're still working on. Uh, we're still working on it in the sense that uh, it takes, you then have to start worrying about implementation and there have been places where it worked well and places uh, where there have been stumbles. Uh, the legislature itself set up a number of special commissions to continue looking at issues and trying to work in connection with those. And so we come into a new legislative session this month with not the volume of bills that were being filed two and four years ago, but with still some things going on and lots of work going on on the side. So there's still work to be done. Uh, the, one of the measures of, of success or not success uh, is what's the recidivism rate? It's still too high. What's the rate for people who are uh, in, in our, especially our county houses of correction with substance abuse problems or mental health problems? very high. So we need to find new ways to start dealing with what to do with these people instead of shoving them into this one one size fits all of prisons. Um, so uh, I want to just come back and second that uh, the luncheons were an important part of this process for me. I got to know a lot of new people. I learned about a lot of things that people were doing. Uh, some of this, people have mentioned immigration cases, they were very moving and very interesting to learn the detail that people had worked in. So it really was a way for people to, to do something new that they hadn't done before. Um, and with that, I'll, I'll turn it to the next person. Thank you, John. Um, I wanna let you know that we're not gonna cut short Michael's time. We may have to cut into some question and answer time, but you'll, I'm sure you'll, enjoy hearing from Michael Felsen, who retired in July 2018, following a 39-year career with the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of the Solicitor in Boston. Michael began his career there as a trial attorney and for 10 years handled litigation matters involving enforcement of the federal worker protection statutes, including OSHA, the Fair Labor, Labor Standards Act, ERISA, to name a few. He served as ERISA counsel for 20 years overseeing the department's enforcement of that pension and health plan related law in the six New England states. For the nine years before Michael's retirement, he led the Boston office as regional solicitor and helped to develop innovative strategies for maximizing the effectiveness of the department's worker protection enforcement efforts. His work with the department's International Labor, Labor Affairs Bureau took him to Poland and Ukraine where he developed an interest in worker protection in the developing world. Before beginning his career in the Department of Labor, Michael clerked with then Associate Justice Paul Liakos of the SJC. He has served as chair of the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bar Association's Labor and Employment Section Council and on Northeastern Law's Alumni Board. And he's a recent recipient of the Labor Guild's Father Boyle Award for Excellence in Labor Management Relations. As an Access to Justice Fellow, Michael worked with Justice at Work a legal nonprofit founded to support organizations of workers in low paying jobs. 
Michael focused his work on legal support for immigrant workers at risk of or subjected to immigration-related retaliation, including development of a guide for organizations and workers to respond to employer retaliation for asserting their rights, and a training on immigration raids in the workplace. As you'll hear from Michael, his project developed in ways that he probably could not have foreseen. Please take it away, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Janet. <clears throat> I guess that's true for all of us. Uh, the projects have, have taken paths that we might not have foreseen. So, so as you heard from the introduction, the very kind introduction, um, <clears throat> you know, my career was focused on worker protection uh, in, you know, through the federal government. And one of the things that I, that I learned uh, as in, in doing that over several decades was that the federal government can't do can't protect workers uh, by itself. It really needs uh, collaboration with with others, uh, and particularly, you know, for low wage workers, collaboration with with organizations like worker centers that advocate for these workers. And during you know my last ten years with the government, I began some of these collaborations, uh, you know, in in the the New England area, uh, and decided that that uh, in 2018 that I was ready to leave the government and to start doing some some work uh, along these lines outside of uh, outside of my previous career including doing some stuff with the International Labor Organization because you know as Janet mentioned I was you know I'm very interested in international stuff too but but uh, through my work I actually had done had done some collaborations with justice at work which is a very unique small, uh, legal nonprofit uh, whose whose model is to uh, help to empower uh, low wage workers who uh, through supporting the organizations that that help to organize them uh, and to help them to to uh, to really assert their rights and um, again to get access to justice. So it really is a uh, so I'm an access I. This it sounded historic. I'm still an access to justice fellow with Justice at Work, um, and one of the projects that we actually worked on <clears throat> was uh, before COVID uh, was was developing a, a manual for um, for clerk magistrates in the small claims courts uh, around uh, wage violations that you know, very common wage violations. Uh, that low-wage workers and immigrant workers who are particularly vulnerable to retaliation and so forth, the kinds of things that they experience, which are not necessarily big ticket items, they may be a few thousand dollars that the person has been cheated out of wages. Uh, and so, so we put together a 40-page manual for the clerk magistrates in the small claims courts to, to try to, to, to hopefully get them much more familiar with what, what the requirements are of employers in terms of how they treat their workers. Uh, and we met with the, the, the chief clerk and the clerk magistrates and the worker center representatives and so forth. And all that happened before COVID. Um, uh, it's been a little bit put on hold as a result of COVID. And then COVID hit uh, and I actually got much more involved. I mean, I started out doing about, I, I guess I'll quickly just say, I'm actually a double major. You know, I was thinking, you know, we're, we're all sort of, because we graduate after the first year, we're all postdoctoral fellows now, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I had a double major. I actually, in my first few months with Justice at Work, uh, I mean, doing the Access to Justice program with Justice at Work, we, we also were given the opportunity to learn about uh, some of the immigration work that was being done uh, by, by PAIR that Martha, you know, has mentioned. 
And I, I became really intrigued with that. And <clears throat> I ended up actually, I'm representing a Rwandan refugee uh, who is seeking asylum in this country. And I I'm, I've, you know, took on his representation, but I also, you know, it, it, a very deep experience for me was going into the, the ICE detention centers in Suffolk, Plymouth, and Bristol counties and taking, taking the statements of uh, people from all over the world who were seeking asylum in the United States. And, and uh, this was a screening process for, to help pair figure out, you know, who might be the most uh, promising candidates for asylum status uh, that, who would be, you know, uh, assigned to, to, to uh, pro bono attorneys. Um, that, with, with COVID, I stopped doing that and I became sort of more full-time with Justice Network. Uh, and we've had our hands completely full uh, doing, doing COVID-related uh, education and advocacy, uh, you know, for workers around uh, safety and health on the job, you know, given COVID and uh, unemployment possibilities, uh, right to sick leave, and so on and so forth. So I know I'm, I, we're run, we've run out of time, um, but I just I want to say that that uh, I, you know, I obviously truly value uh, the experience of of being able to do this this work, uh, you know, outside, continuing what my previous trajectory, but in a completely different, you know, new way to to approach problems, um, and also being exposed to a to a whole different area of law that is extremely compelling, you know, obviously, especially in, in this moment in, in our country's history. So highly recommend it. <laughs> Thank you very much, Michael. I'm going to turn it over to Susan. Thank you, Janet. And thank you, Karen, Cindy, Rosemary, Martha, Michael, John, uh, for joining us and sharing your experiences. Um, I know we are at one o'clock um, and I don't see any, any questions in the Q&A, um, which um, I guess is fortunate, although um, um, for everyone attending, please know that you can send questions um, to me directly. Maybe um, if I get several, maybe I'll put together a Q&A sheet to send out to the whole group. Um, but if, if you have individual questions, please send them to me. Again, um, everyone attending today, I'll send a packet of information along with my contact information, um, which is also on our website. So thank you again. I really look forward to meeting all of you um, who are attending today. Um, having conversations with you to explore projects, pro bono work, partners, um, and being a part of our program. So thank you again. Thank you to the BBA again um, for hosting us. And um, I guess it's nice that we got to um, stay inside in this messy day. <laughs> um, and uh, thank you again.